Welcome to the Eventualities Podcast, interesting conversations with the people behind our favourite regional festivals and events. We dive into the memorable experiences they create, the unexpected challenges they've overcome and what they've learned along the way. The Birdsville Big Red Bash is recognised as the world's most remote music festival and is situated at the foot of the iconic Big Red Dune in the Simpson Desert, 35 kilometres west of Birdsville in Queensland. From its humble beginnings in 2013 of a sing-along around the campfire for a few hundred people, the festival has since grown into Australia's largest outback event with three days of music featuring a huge lineup of some of Australia's most iconic artists attracting a sellout crowd of over 9,000. It's my pleasure to welcome Greg Donovan, founder of the Birdsville Big Red Bash to the Eventualities podcast. Before Greg's foray into desert and outback-based events, he was a senior insurance executive. Greg lives in Sydney with his wife and has three adult children, two who work with him in the events business. Greg was a presenter at the 2019 Regional Events Conference in Dubbo, and I'm grateful for his time today. Welcome, Greg. Hi, Belinda. Glad to join you. Thank you so much. And we're, we're doing this over Zoom, everyone. So fingers crossed that technology works in our favour as we move through this podcast today. So Greg, thanks so much for joining us. And I'd love for you to start by telling us about how you go from working in insurance to being the founder of such an iconic event. Well, like uh, most of these sort of weird and wonderful things in life, there's no set plan. It's you stumble onto something and you fumble your way along and, you know, you, you follow something and things sort of unfold. And that's sort of how it happened for me. I was working in insurance for many, many years in, you know, the senior sort of corporate roles, all of that stuff. Back in 2008, uh, my youngest son, Steve, was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. So, you know, after a couple of years having that and seeing the impact that that had on his life, I decided to come up with a bit of a crazy plan and try and raise some money and awareness to you know, to help with type 1 diabetes. So what I, just, what I did is I looked for the hardest running event. I was a bit of a runner, ran marathons and ultra runs and all this sort of stuff. So I looked for the hardest running event there was pretty much on the planet and thought I'll challenge myself to do that. So we found, I found this event called the Four Desert Series, which is, involves running 250 kilometres across a desert over six days in, in some of the most inhospitable places in the world. So things like the Atacama Desert in Chile on the high altitude, uh, the Gobi Desert in China, the Sahara Desert in Africa, out of Egypt, and uh, finally in Antarctica, which is sort of a desert because it's not wet, there's no, no water. So I took on this challenge, but not only by myself, I sort of recruited a team of other crazy people to come and take on the challenge with us, one of them being my middle son, Matthew, and you know someone else who had type 1 diabetes and others. So that was 2012 and we headed off all around the world to take on this desert challenge and be the first, in fact, the first team who were actually able to complete this four desert challenge. And we set a whole lot of records, you know, the first father and son to complete the desert challenge, first team, you know, first couple. Uh, We had an old fella too with us, so he became the oldest person to complete the challenge at the same time. So so that led me to thinking, well, you know, there's none of these sort of events, these desert running events in Australia, so maybe so we can keep our fundraising efforts going and keeping it as sort of an annual event to raise money every year, we, we'd set up a desert running event in Australia. So that's what I decided to do. You know, in 2013, in the middle of running the desert, I also took a recce out to Birdsville and I thought, well, Birdsville, we've driven across the Simpson Desert 
with our family and the new birds fall near the area, I thought that's an ideal place for doing a desert run. And we set up an event called the Big Red Run, how to birds fall through the Simpson Desert and try to uh, get people from all around Australia to come and run with us and raise money for Type 1. So yeah, that was a hugely successful event. We, you know, most years we had 60, 70, 80 runners, 90 runners doing 250 kilometres across the desert. So over the six years that that event ran, we raised nearly $1.2 million for, for type 1 diabetes and a lot of, a lot of awareness. So that's sort of what led, it, led us to birds for. But the first year we ran that event in 2013, to sort of celebrate, we got John Williamson to come out and sort of play to the runners and the volunteers on top of the Big Red June, you know, because it was a special event and we wanted to celebrate. So John Williamson agreed, we got him to come out. So that's sort of how it all started. It was just a little sing-along around the campfire for our runners and volunteers. But sort of the Bush Telegraph got out and a few people thought, heard that John Williams was going to play in the Simpson Desert and they wanted to come. Kept getting messages from people, I want to come to this John Williamson thing, you know, but you've got nothing to do with Big Red Run. So I thought, oh, look, bugger it, I'll just sell some tickets because, you know, people are interested. You know, it's costing us a bit of money to bring him out and all that sort of stuff. And and we can put the money to the fundraising. So, like, you know, why not sell some tickets? So we put some tickets on sale, sold a few hundred tickets, and that was it. Everybody came out. They had a fantastic time. They thought this was the most amazing place to have live music, and it sort of treated a little, little light bulb went on in the head, and I thought, well, you know, maybe there is something in this, you know. It's a running event, but maybe we can do some music too on the side. And so the next year, 2014, we decided to take it to a, music festival effectively gone for to a music festival so we we uh, had two days we had about uh, 15 artists and set up a stage on the big red june and thought we're going to get all the bother setting up all this stuff you know make it a couple of days lots of artists and we really got out and tried to market it and sell some tickets you know we got we got a few people we got about a thousand or about 1100 people but lost a lot of money got lost money to put on and so just sort of thought well you know Maybe that wasn't such a good idea. <laughs> Sounded a good, you know, like one of these good ideas at the time, but maybe not. <laughs> so from there, I sort of headed back to work after that 2014 event, you know, with your head hung low, you know, that didn't go great, lost all this money. So pretty much as soon as I got back to work, to the office, you know, got called into the boss's office, you know, the old uh, chat, you know, Greg, you're a great worker and everything else, but, you know, we're having this restructure and he rolls redundant. See you later. <laughs> oh. Been there for 20 years, you know, senior position, and I was shown the door. And I thought, well, you know, that's sort of a relief in a way, you know, 20 years working in the corporate world. But the good thing was it gave me a whole big kick of money from a redundancy and to think about where I might go next with my, with my life. And having done this thing in the desert, you know, like I got financial advisors saying, oh, look, you know, you're getting on, Greg, should, you know, invest this money in a balanced super fund and all this sort of rubbish and thought that sounded pretty boring. So I thought, look, I'm going to have another crack at this festival and got a bit of, bit of dough from a redundancy. So I'm going to invest in, in, you know, some really great talent. So I went out and contracted Jimmy Barnes to come in 2015. <laughs> so I thought it sounded like much more... Uh, much more interesting, a much better investment than putting it in a super fund. I'll just give it to Jimmy and he can come out and belt out the bit of rock and roll in the desert. So that was 2015 and word got out and we ended up with 3,000 people. You know, we covered our costs, probably made a little bit of money, not much, but, you know, that was it. We're on a roll and 
you put on a great event and, you know, it's like that. You just need to reach that tipping point, I guess, and the momentum takes over and the word of mouth takes over. So we thought, well, yeah, we're on our way. We're on our way. So the next year, 2016, a lot of people wanted to come and see Jimmy, couldn't get the chance. So we, we got Jimmy back in 2016. We got Paul Kelly out and a whole bunch of great artists and bang, we were sold, you know, 7,000 people were sold out within a few months and just went gangbusters. So, and it's just, you know, from there, it's, it's gone from strength to strength. And we've had a lot of challenges along the way and we've got a great team and, and that's sort of what had happened. So, you know, there was certainly never any grand plan to set up a music festival like, you know, in reality, you know, if anyone said, I'm going out to Birdsville, I'm going to set up a music festival in the middle of the desert, they go, well, <laughs> yes, just go and see those men in the white coats. That's, uh, <laughs> you'd have to have rocks in your head, I reckon, to, to have that as some sort of a plan. But it's funny how things work and what you stumble across. That is just so amazing. I'm so glad that you are doing what you're doing now. Do you think you would have kept going had you stayed with the insurance company or do you think you wouldn't have been able to sustain, I guess, doing two full-time jobs? Well, look, that's a very interesting question and it's a really hard one to answer. I mean, you know, you, you're working you know, in the corporate grind and, you know, there's no way I could have grown the festival and, and, and done what I've done whilst working a full-time job and maybe that's sort of part of the reason why I got the fleet because I was probably a little bit more focused on all this desert stuff and music than maybe not enough on my work. But look, you know, it was the time of my life. I'd got pretty much over the corporate world and the red tape and all the stuff that goes with that, you know, the suits and traveling to the city and all of that, you know, you get to a point where, you know, you've been there and done that and you want to do something that's more meaningful and can make a difference to people's lives and, and, and it's fun so, and working for yourself. So I think at some stage, yeah, I was, I was heading in that direction and I guess the redundancy gave me the kickstart that I needed to get on and, you know, focus my mind on making this thing work. That is yeah, so amazing. So there's so much to unpack in what you've just said, but I guess what I'm really curious about is the logistical side of things with running an event like the Big Red Bash in the middle of the desert and how you do that every year because essentially you're recreating a festival experience from scratch and then a few days later packing it down again. So can you talk me through, I guess, and obviously this has evolved over the last few years, but you've also experienced pretty rapid growth in that short time frame as well. But can you just talk a little bit to that and how you started obviously with just John Williamson, but how you've started and how the infrastructure is growing and how you look after that side of things? Yeah, yeah. Look, the infrastructure thing is is a huge challenge. It's very logistical and takes a lot of effort from a lot of really skilled people. Like in the first year when we had John Williamson up on the Big Red June, we really had no idea what we were doing. And we got a few old pallets and a bit of timber and knocked together a stage. And, you know, we had a, borrowed a couple of portaloos from the council, but then John Williamson's manager said, oh, look, you've got to have a loo backstage. Well, how are we going to get a bloody portaloo up the top of Big Red? So the I dragged this portal up the top of Big Red and then we didn't have enough generators weren't big enough to work. So we had to go to the council and see if they got a generator. They didn't have a spare generator. The only generator they had was the backup generator for the airport. So I managed to con the uh, <laughs> the guy in the visitor centre that we can borrow the airport's backup generator, which was a huge no-no, of course. Left <laughs> <laughs> the airport without their backup generator, but we dragged this massive generator to the top of Big Red June. You know, we got bogged 
you know, in our trucks trying to drag this big generator up and down the dune. That was a sight to behold. And, uh, you know, so it was all very basic and rudimentary and, you know, let's just do this thing in the first year. But, you know, it's evolved hugely since then and we've got a really skilled team. But the thing is that you're right, the site, we build a little town. We call it Bashville and we build this little town called Bashville. But it's actually designed, you know, on the computer. It's mapped out by GPS down to the nearest, you know, nearest centimetres, basically. And we the computer design and map out this site and the whole flow of the site and the design of the site is sort of done every year and it evolves a little bit every year as we learn what works and, and what can be improved. So we've got a site that's got no power, it's got no water, it's got no internet, it's got no sewerage. It's, it's, it's basically, uh, it's like being on Mars pretty much. And we've got to bring all of that in and create this town called Bashville for, you know, in 2020 it was going to be 10,000 people. So 10,000 people site. So, you know, when you look at Queensland's population and 10,000 people is the second biggest town in Queensland to the west of the Great Divide. So Mount Isa, Mount Isa's got like about 20,000 people and 10,000 people is the next biggest town in Queensland to the west of the Divide. So it's a significant little uh, population thing. And, and we bring everything in, you know. We've got road trains of generators and we've got a huge crew just marking out the site down to the last square metre. You know, we've got 4,000 campsites that are individually marked out, you know, and all of our marquees go up. We hand-build this engineered stage into the side of the dune. It's a massive job for our crew just to build this stage and put everything up and we you know truck in from the east coast you know all of the production equipment and we set all of that up and you know the amount of gear that goes into setting up a big festival like this in the site is just massive it takes a long long time to set it up and, and a long long time to to pack it back down but yeah I was just, actually just going to ask that so how maybe not you but when does the first I guess person or team arrive on site to start setting up like how far in advance of the festival yeah we're getting out the birds for uh, nearly three weeks in advance and starting the planning and the actual setup probably starts a couple of weeks out there's heaps to do, like, you know, we've actually designed our own toilet system. We, we work on composting toilets, which are environmentally friendly and don't need any water. So we've got 250 of those to set up. They're all sort of sort of flat-packed, but we put them all together and get all that done, do all the plumbing, and, you know, we've got, you know, 20 toilet blocks set up all around the camping ground and big toilet blocks we set up in the concert area. And so that in itself needs a huge team just to set up the whole sanitation and toilet side of the thing. So you know, and on and on it goes. It's a, it's a massive, massive exercise. Wow. It, it certainly is. It really makes you start thinking about the things you take for granted at a normal, when I say normal, in inverted commas, festival site. So because of, you know, that alone, can you talk to us about your team? Like, I guess your core team and are they employed year round? How many people do you bring in for the fe- actual festival, that type of thing? Yeah, so on a year-round basis, it is a year-round job. It takes a year's planning and there's a lot of stuff going on right throughout the year behind the scenes. So we've probably got a staff of around about eight people who are working full-time on this around the year. And as we get towards the event time and the planning gets more and more, that team continues to build. And, you know, when we get to the actual event itself, more and more, you know, purely event-based people that might come out to Birdsville for a month to be part of our actual on-site event delivery team continues to expand. So I guess by the time we're on site and setting up, we've probably got a team of somewhere around 50, 60 staff 
But then on top of that, we've you know we've got a lot of contractors here, all sorts of contractors looking after all the different aspects, you know, from production to you know the fencing and marquees and and you know security, you know, medical. There's a whole lot of other you know people that come out that are contractors that help our paid staff. But the real the real horsepower that sits behind it all is is our amazing volunteers, and we get uh, volunteers from every corner of Australia. And we, we have about 500 or so volunteers. Oh, my um, goodness. Yeah, I was actually just going to ask about that because your website, which is great, has a really interesting section about volunteers. And I love the blogs you've got. A couple of volunteers from previous years have written a blog. And I think that gives a really good insight from a volunteer's perspective. So well done on that. But it also states you have over 20 volunteer teams. So I'd love for you to just talk to us a little bit more about how that works, because obviously you're very reliant on those volunteers. But likewise, I think the volunteer positions I don't want to say sell out because they're not paying, but they, you know, they get filled, those positions get filled very quickly, don't they? Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, we really value our volunteers and and put part, part of what we work hard to do is to make sure that the volunteer experience is a great experience. You know, it's a different experience to being a patron, but you still get an amazing experience working with other volunteers and, you know, really being working behind the scenes and seeing what us as a whole team is able to deliver. So, look, the volunteers, you know, they love it and many come back year after year or every couple of years, which, which is great for us because, you know, it's great to have volunteers who who just fit in like, you know, they're old hands and they know everything. But, you know, we provide the volunteers with a huge amount of training. You know, we provide them all their shift details beforehand. You know, we talk to them in the lead up. We communicate with them a lot. You know, we create the expectations and we meet their expectations. So it's not like they're just rolling up and not really knowing what's going to go on. You know, they're already pretty much half trained with all the information we give them when they get there. They know where they've got to be, when they've got to be there. They know all their shifts. They know what team they're in and everything like that. So it's a really good environment for people. They feel comfortable. They don't feel, they feel supported and they feel special and they are special. So yeah, look, and we think the best way to do it is, is to give volunteers, break them up into teams. So we'll have a merchandise team and a, you know, have a catering team and an infrastructure team, sanitation team, road marshalling team, campsite teams, you know, so many different specific areas and, you know, people, people you know, love being in a team and being part of the team throughout the bash. But the other thing too, we, you know, we, we in each volunteer position, we set, you know, we call them a bundle of shifts, but we also always make sure that every volunteer has the opportunity you know, a good opportunity to have time off during the music time so that they can actually go and, you know, at least out of the three days at music, most of them all most of them all get two days, you know, being able to watch the music or most of the music. So we want to make sure that they also get to experience what we're delivering to all the other patrons as well. Yeah, that's fantastic. And your volunteers, are they coming from all over the country for this particular event? Do you have like local volunteers? How Where are they coming from? Yeah, they, they do. They're pretty much the same profile as our uh, patrons. So they come from every corner of the country. You know, a lot of them are, you know, are people who like to travel. You know, they've got their van or their camper trailer. They're fairly mature people, you know, in their 40s or 50s or 60s. So they're really good workers. You know, they've got the, you know, the diligence and the sort of loyalty. And, you know, they just love being out there and traveling and, and doing stuff like this. So, yeah, look, it's, it's amazing. And, and as I said, you know, a lot of them come back year after year. We always offer up our volunteer positions, you know, open up the volunteer applications for the first week for people who have volunteered before. So, you know, they've got that loyalty factor. 
and then we open up after that. But, you know, like a good example is, you know, we've got all of our volunteer positions, I think, filled up, filled up within a few days this year for 2020. Unfortunately, we were cancelled, as you know. But out of 520 volunteer positions, actually 500 have actually signed back on and committed for 2021. So, wow, it's fantastic. Yeah, that's amazing. So, I was going to ask if people are interested, should they just keep an eye out on your website or through your socials? But there's probably not much point for 2021 because it looks like you're full. Yeah, we we are pretty full. But look, I certainly encourage people to have a look at our volunteer stuff. Put your name down onto our volunteer database so that you know get kept up with information and opportunities that come up. And you know, for 2022, it'll be a whole new, whole new sort of thing rolling over. So. Yeah, I wouldn't discourage people. You know, you never know. We, we always have a few last-minute dropouts and, yeah, so it's okay. always opportunity. Good to yeah. know. Well, we'll put a link to your website and socials in the show notes of the podcast anyway for people that are interested. And just quickly, one more to finish up the teams and volunteering, but do you have any staff based up in near Birdsville or are you all kind of scattered around the country? Yeah, we're pretty much scattered uh, around the country. Like our full-time staff, we're based here in Sydney on the northern beaches. Our office is here. You know, there's no need for us to be in Birdsville or based in Birdsville. You know, we obviously spend a lot of time up there and uh, even during the year we'll we'll go up there, you know, when we need to do stuff locally. But part of our sort of full-time team is we work sort of in conjunction with another company called Event Safety Services, which help us provide a lot of our logistics and that sort of stuff. So I guess you could say we sort of outsource, but to them but you know in reality we work in partnership with them and uh, they have their staff but you know we work like one big team and they're mainly based in the in the blue mountains so and we've got other people around the country doing sort of work from time to time in specialist areas so yeah look it's a good team and you know we've got great systems uh, that sits behind our event systems and you know management systems that allow us to all work together nowadays electronically Mm. pretty easily. It's great. Mm. Oh, that's great. Excellent. So I guess let's talk a little bit about Birdsville and the community and the impact that an event like yours has on that community. And I guess um, even going further afield, I'm sure it has ripple effects throughout the whole region and outback Queensland. So I read, I think on your website, that in 2018, the event generated over $11 million for the broader community there. Is that that stats up to date. That's correct. Uh, yeah, that's right. It was a bit over 11 million. And, you know, going forward with our sold out event and slightly increased crowd for 2012 or 2021 as it is now, we, you know, it'll probably be up closer to the $13 million mark of tourism benefits. That's people coming to the outback and traveling around and spending their money, which is great because most people don't just come to the bash and come to birds. For most, you know, on average, People make about a two-week trip out of this and they have an itinerary and they go around all the different outback towns on their way to and from wherever they're coming from and spend a lot of money on the way. So it's like everybody gets, all the little towns get a clip of the ticket and some, some flow and benefits. You know, I talked to people in Winton, which is not far away, and they've got a film festival on sort of just before the bash, but or a little bit before the bash, but they say that they reckon the bash brings in more money to the town than the film festival just from people travelling on their way to Birdsville. So, and that's the same with all the outback towns. They just get hammered, which is great. Amazing. Yeah, that is fantastic. So you're able to attract some of the biggest um, performers 
in Australia. Obviously, you started that first year off pretty well with John Williamson, but, you know, your lineup for what was meant to be this year's event was just outstanding. And I'm hoping that most of those have carried over to next year. But how have you found that process and how do you go about it? Obviously, now you're building up quite a name and I imagine being able to perform in front of that sand dune would be on most artists' bucket list. But how do you find that process? Yeah, look, it it was really challenging in the early days because, you know, with the event not very well known and you're going out to sort of high-profile artists and trying to convince them to come to Birdsville and they go, well, where's Birdsville? It's in the middle of nowhere. Like, what's all this about? But, look, the event has has built up a huge reputation as being a really one real well-run festival. And, you know, I guess with the artists and all their bands and entourage, you know, we treat them you know, I guess like we treat the volunteers in a way, we, we want to make sure that they have a good time and that they, you know, it's special for them. And it's an amazing stage to play on, you know, looking out across the desert, you know, with this massive campsite in front of you, big red dune behind you, you know, the big blue outback sky or at night, you know, the starry skies. It's, it is a really special stage to play on. And, you know, a lot of the artists, you know, have come to us and said, look, this is the probably, you know, the best setting or stage that they've actually played on it's got no roof it's not a not a closed in stage it's an open stage with a dune behind it and yeah but so they love it and i think you know like in any industry people talk to each other and we figure that if we you know look after the artists really well and uh, give them a good time and a good experience that they'll talk and you know we're going to have a much better reception when we're trying to attract you know bigger and better artists every year oh that's great have you got anyone on your wish list that you haven't been able to wrangle yet (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we got a few. <laughs> oh, I can't tell you who they are. <laughs> we have to stay tuned. <laughs> yeah, we've had some really, you know, the, the top artists over the years. Like in 2019, we had Midnight All. So, look, it's the, it's the only gig that Midnight All played, major gig they've played in Australia since 2017. And who knows when the next gig will be. Hopefully next year in 21 when things start to uh, settle down. But, like, you know, to be the only only festival to have them on the stage in, in you know within a three-year period has been that was a real honor but you know we had some great great performers over the years from you know jimmy barnes and john farnham and kate sobrano and and Mint and missy higgins you know and many many others so you know it's great people love it no that's amazing well done so i guess we should touch on 2020 and obviously it's not been a year for any festival or event around the world So can you talk us through your decision-making around having to cancel the event and I guess what that means, not just for this year, but I guess the impact and how you're handling 2021 and beyond? Yeah, look, like every event organiser, it's been difficult and challenging times for us. Look, the decision to cancel, it was sort of really a no-brainer like it was for everyone else. It was, you know, the writing was on the wall once we got to the end of March. You know, we thought possibly this this thing might not take off as the way it did, but, you know, it the, the virus took off, borders became closed, you know, everything became shut down and, you know, it became very quickly obvious towards the towards the latter half of March that, you know, with, it, with an event in July and people coming from every corner of Australia, plus the event team and infrastructure, et cetera, that this was going to be very hard to make work and... You know, the risks involved were very high if we wanted to keep pushing ahead with things. So, you know, the, the closer you get to the event, the more and more money you, you start handing out. <laughs> and we wanted to make a call so that, you know, we could obviously preserve our position, uh, you know, and stop spending all the money on the event and 
take a deep breath and say, well, let's focus on how we might move forward to next year. But, but at the same time, before we announced all of that, we, we had been in touch with all of our artists and we got all of it, the commitment for all of our artists to come back in 2021. So by the time we cancelled, we're in a good position that we're able to go to our patrons. It was a sold-out event at that time, fully sold out. We're able to go back to our patrons and tell them about the cancellation, but reassure them, you know, that they could hold on to their tickets. We'll be doing the same lineup that they've bought on for 2021 and giving them a choice, obviously, of a refund. Because, you know, not everybody can come in 2021, but if they wanted to hold on to their tickets, they could do that as well. And, and you know, like... 85% of people have held on to their tickets. So, you know, that's a real indication that people are confident and really want to come back and, you know, really, we really want to come back and deliver the show for them, for the, for the faith and the loyalty that they've shown to us. Absolutely. And have you, obviously, so you are planning for 2021. Has, what has that involved in terms of who you're liaising with from stakeholders? And obviously they're still reliant on quite a number of things that are outside your control, but I guess for your team, you are planning on going ahead with 2021 at this stage? Yeah, absolutely. Like we're fully sold out for 2021 at this stage. I guess we'd probably be the only event in Australia, the only festival in Australia at this point in time to have a have a sold out festival. So, you know, we're planning, we're certainly planning to deliver it. We've, you know, Queensland have got an, a COVID safe event framework. We've developed our COVID safe event plans extremely thorough planning around all aspects of delivering a COVID safer event plan. Those plans are with Queensland Health going through assessment at the moment and, you know, we're in communication with them regularly on a whole bunch of details around those plans. We, you know, we do meet all the requirements in the COVID safe event framework. And, you know, look, things are getting better with the virus. The numbers are coming down. Victoria seems to have been on top of things. You know, six states really haven't had any community transmission in five months. New South Wales is in a really strong position and you know look we think if those trends continue there should be no reason that, that we can that we should be able to go ahead in 2021 you'd imagine the borders will be open most borders will be open by christmas or or soon thereafter and look people are itching to get out and do stuff like this and you know, our job is to put it on we've got a, a 1.3 million square meter site so <laughs> social, distancing. social distancing won't be a problem <laughs> No problem at all. We're in the middle of the desert, you know. Like, I mean, people still want to come into the concert area, but you know, even within the concert area, we've got like 65,000 square metres in our concert area. It's like twice the size of the Gabba, and we've got like 30,000 people going to the Gabba. So, look, there's no problem with space. You know, people can easily easily social distance, and, you know, we've, we've got a great team, really skilled at managing the event, and we'll have no problems in, in delivering a COVID-safe event. So, look, we're just looking forward to getting this plan signed off and getting going. Our whole team has been on board and planning and doing all the details behind the scenes really for the last few months. So we're, we're, it's just business as usual for us. That's exciting. That's really good to hear. And, yeah, you're right. Everyone is just, I think, busting for the return of festivals and events. So, yeah, 2021 will be a big year, I think. Look, you did mention at the top of this about there's so many challenges you guys face with staging this event. Can you just go through a couple of the bigger ones that you find or year after year that keep turning up and you're continually looking at how you can evolve and, you know, I guess get creative with what you do to overcome those? Yeah. Well, I guess every year seems to throw up new and unique challenges. So we're learning every year and, you know, like I think, so, for instance, 2015, that was the year we had 3,000 people with Jimmy Barnes. Like, you know, we'd gone from 1,200 people to 3,000 and things were a bit, 
like not as structured probably as they should have been. Everyone had a great time and 3,000 people are not too bad to look after, but it was, you know, really that was the start of, hey, we've got to make this thing really rigid and tight and structured, but we don't want people to see it as being like so controlled. You know, they want to feel free and relaxed and move around freely, but behind the scenes, everything's got to be tight and managed well. So that was sort of our first year of really systematizing the whole event. So we got from 2015, then we got sold out for 2016, but that was a wet year. <laughs> and sort of about two weeks before the festival, we had a lot of rain out at Birdsville and out, out on site. And there was one dirt road, there's one dirt road that leads from Birdsville to Big Red and it was sort of underwater and bog holes and mud holes. You know, the site, event site itself, you know, it's on a dry lake bed. Well, you know, when it rains a lot, that doesn't look too great. So we had a situation where we basically didn't have an event site. So I had to go knocking on council's door and say, hey guys, look, we've got 7,000 people on their way to Birdsville. We need somewhere to put this event on. <laughs> and we like to put it on the town oval. <laughs> and uh, we like people to camp at the caravan park and on the town common and bronco yards and all that. And here's our plan, how we're going to make it all work. And this is like not far out from the event. And Look, luckily the council backed us, said, yeah, you're right, guys, you can, uh, you can have the council oval. The CEO said, yeah, you'll, as long as you fill out a booking form for it. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah, as long as the paperwork's done. But anyway, so we had to sort of turn this whole event that we'd done this meticulous planning for out at Birdsville. And even though we sort of thought about this as a fallback position, you know, we're actually implementing this on the fly and restructuring the whole event and volunteers and the way we work the event. And we had it on, you know, Birdsville Oval. And you know, sort of funny challenges like Birdsville Oval is right under the flight path of the airport. And when we wanted to set our big screens up and stage, you know, we had to like get CASA approval because it was like right under the flight path. And they said, oh, you can't put your screens over there. You've got to put your screens somewhere else. <laughs> so it was all this sort of stuff that you never, never expect. But, you know, we delivered a great event. Everyone had a good time. You know, it wasn't the way it was supposed to be, but like you know, the show must go on and, and we made it go on. So things like that. And then the next year, we went back out to Big Red and it was the first year, 2017. First year, we had a really big crowd actually out on the June, you know, 7,000 odd people again. And, you know, we had all our plans in place to roll everyone in because it's a one dirt road going into one big campsite trying to get everybody in and logistics and so forth. And, you know, we didn't quite have our roll-in logistics running smoothly enough and now those are too, bit, too many steps and we were holding people up too much to get them into the venue and as a result we ended up with an eight kilometre queue of cars <laughs> waiting to get in. It was like oh my god um, you know like how are we going to fix this so we sort of had to fix that on the fly and get traffic moving in and from there we came up with a you know a seamless you know slick way of rolling people in quickly and you know the most people might have to wait in the queue might be like 20 minutes so which was fine so like all of those challenges every year you know in our toilet system for example you know trying to run the thing off portaloos and big toilet trucks and all of that and you know the feedback we started getting about that was not good you know they're really hard to keep clean and keep pumped out and you know keep them nice and service them properly you know so and I said look no that's that's we've got to find another solution that is going to give people a good experience when they go to the toilet that's like pretty important people remember that and you know you can have jimmy barnes or midnight oil but and have a good concept but if the toilets are no good then you're going to get slammed so so you know we reinvented all of that and we're always fine-tuning every year 
we want to fine tune and we want to get our ratings up. You know, we go on net promoter score and ratings, satisfaction ratings. And so every year, you know, we want to get that, our ratings up. We want to get word of mouth and, and provide people a great time. And I think we've had last year, we had 80, I think 84% of people said the event exceeded their expectations. So we were really happy with that. So well done. By the same token, 16, you know, there was 15% of people that only met their expectations. Well, we want, we want to exceed everybody's expectations, not just 84%. So, you know, we always work hard to see what we can do to improve things operationally every year. Wow. Okay. And um, a quick one. Are you able to offer FPOS to your patrons or how does that work? Because you've obviously got no internet reception out there in the desert. Yeah, we get satellite internet out there. So we have FPOS for our patrons, for our merchandise tent. Unfortunately, we're not able to extend that to the food vendors and other vendors out there. It's more of an in-house thing that we do ourselves. But, you know, we through our FPOS, we can give people cash out. So if they want cash out to spend at a food vendor anywhere else, they can get cash out from our merch tent. Most of our merchandise transactions go through FPOS now, which is great. You know, and we've got another big satellite. You know, we've got that special one for FPOS, but we've got another satellite set up for our communications around the event site or at the event site because most of the event runs obviously on the internet and systems and processes. So we've got all of that under control. Oh, okay. Very good. Where do you see the big red bash going in the future? Look, it, it evolves every year. I think we're sort of reaching the capacity of our crowd. You know, we want to give people a great time and, you know, we don't necessarily want to just keep growing numbers for the sake of growing numbers. Like if we can grow numbers and not impact people's experience, we'll, we'll do that. But I think we're getting to around the numbers that we will. So we're just focusing on the people's experience, bringing new elements into the, into the event, you know, crowd participation stuff. But also the stuff we do on stage, we want it to be not just a music festival, so to speak, where you just roll out artists after artists, but really put a show on up on that stage and get a lot of interaction between different artists and different things happening, you know, different acts and, you know, really make it quite different to your your standard everyday music festival. So people feel part of it and get a sense of fun and really just, you know, get the benefit of being in such a special location as part of that. So, look, there's no... There's no grand structured plan. This thing has grown really successfully by, by sort of adapting and trying new things and taking risks and that's, that's what we'll continue to do. Oh, that's great. And I think if this year's taught us anything, it's that we do have to be even more flexible than we normally are. So I think you've got a good recipe there. Quickly, I know 2021 is sold out, but for those who are really interested in coming for 2022, when do your tickets go on sale normally? Normally we put our tickets on sale for the next year in about September, late September, October. So probably got a year to wait to, <laughs> to, to it's okay. wait now for, for our 2022 tickets. But you know, check out the website, join our mailing list. Look, we don't we don't harass you with annoying emails and all this sort of stuff every few days. You'll get an email from us when there's important information or when something's happening or artist release or you know anything like that, and be kept up to date. Good advice. Well, we might just finish with these fun kind of behind the scenes questions that I like to finish each podcast with, if that's okay. Yep. Okay. So what was the last event you went to? Oh, that's thrown my mind back a while. I went to um, a David Bowie special show at the Sydney Opera House. Nice. When was that? Uh, Late last year, maybe November. Okay. November, December. Great. Nearly a year ago. 
Sounds amazing, actually. Um, what's your favourite event you've been to? Look, I'm a bit of a mad marathon runner, and I'd have to say the New York Marathon. We were there in 2002, the year after 9-11, so it was a really special year to be there, and it's just an amazing event. Actually, yeah. you know, you're, you're right, it is amazing. I've been in New York when it's been on as a spectator, not a participant, but I did want to ask you, are you still into marathon running now? Uh, yeah, but just half marathons. Oh, yeah. Hey, that's <laughs> still impressive. Full, full <laughs> marathons. I still run a fair bit, so yeah. Okay, good. Which events on your bucket list? I would say Burning Man. Oh yes, mine too. Just, yeah, yeah. Just you hear a lot about it, and it sort of looks a little bit like our event. It's not. I don't think it's anything like our event, but you know, from the from the air, it looks a bit like our event. So I'd really love to see how all of that sort of logistics works, creating a city of 70,000 people in the middle of the desert. So, yeah, that's that's definitely on the bucket list. Great. Hopefully they open international borders next year some stage. Glastonbury or the Super Bowl? Uh, Glastonbury for me, never been, so love to put that on the list, but unfortunately it's on the same same time as the bash, so I'll have to see if they can get, get them to move that a bit for us. <laughs> we'll make some calls. <laughs> and the last one, your favourite thing about the events and festival industry? Oh, look, it's just the ability to create unique and amazing experiences for people. You know, like last year, a good example, we had Midnight Oil come out, you know, just before sunset with a big red dune behind them, the sun setting over the big red dune and they start playing Dead Heart. Like, you know, those are the things that you just can't, your money can't buy things, experiences that'll live with people forever, you know. And, and, and half an hour after that, after the sun had set, the full moon rose over the dunes. So... Like, how do you do that? So Spectacular. Those special moments. And, you know, I just love being involved in events because, you know, you just get to see the joy it brings to people. And, you know, the, the, it's just really rewarding seeing something that you plan a whole year for actually happen. Stressful, but rewarding. <laughs> yes, you're right. Well, look, we're certainly happy that you've left the insurance industry to come into festivals and events. So thank you for creating what is such an iconic festival on the Australian calendar. I've certainly got it on my bucket list to head up to. I think Vicky from the Ute Master is also <laughs> keen to get up there. So maybe there'll be a group of us head up when, you know, maybe 2022. So thank you so much for your time today, Greg. We're so grateful and keep doing what you're doing because it's, yeah, it's a really great thing that you're offering to the people of Australia. No worries. Thanks, Blenda. It's really been been nice to talk. It's actually good fun to go back and relook at the whole history of the event and everything. So, yeah, thanks for the time. Thank you for listening to the Eventualities podcast. Subscribe for future episodes and the best way you can support us is by leaving a review which helps others find the podcast.